All right, good morning, everybody. Hey, good to see you guys this morning. It's a rough weekend. It's Thanksgiving weekend. So many in our church traveling. Our whole Stanford section is absent this morning. So, but we have an extra college section, kind of uh, with, good to have the kids with us this morning. Hey, let me tell you, absolutely, amen. And I'll just say for the rest of you guys, if God were giving out points for attendance in heaven, you guys would have gold stars for today. What's ironic about today is we're going to finish up Mark chapter 13. All of Mark 13 is great, but this part I think is super great. So the people that aren't here are going to have to catch it afterward. Oh, kids are dismissed, so elementary kids, and then youth group, so junior and senior high. If you guys want to head out with Pastor Chris, you are dismissed at this point to do that. Everybody else, like I said, we're going to be in Mark chapter 13 uh, this morning. And if you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles that you can borrow. We have Bibles that you can take home. Just raise your hand and we'll get one of those Bibles put into your hands. If you want to use a Bible on your phone, you are welcome to. I'm going to be teaching out of the New King James translation. You can look it up in any translation that you um, prefer. So... Just to clarify one quick thing, festive finger foods, right? Now, how much explanation do we really need? It has an adjective, right? It has two adjectives, right? Festive and finger foods. So if you can eat it with your fingers, make it festive and bring it in next week if you want to contribute uh, to the Agape Feast. If you don't want to contribute, we'd love to have you just stay and hang out. There's always way too much food. So that'll be right in the back after service um, tomorrow. So with that said, let's pray and just ask the Lord to really bless, continue to bless uh, our time and now as we go to his word. So Father, we do thank you for this morning, Lord. We thank you so much for this church body that you have given us, Lord, and this place that you have provided, Lord, and this time that you have prescribed for us each and every week to come together, Lord, and to worship you, Lord, and to minister unto you, Lord, even as we are ministered to by you, Lord. And we pray for that ministry of your Holy Spirit to continue now, Lord. We pray that you would give us open ears to hear what your Spirit would say to his church. Lord, we pray that you alone would be our teacher, that man would decrease, Lord, and that your Spirit would increase. We pray that you would bless our time this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. So Mark 13... Continuing this morning in the book of Mark, joining in with Jesus now in what are really just the final days before the cross, right? It's Tuesday, the end of Tuesday of the Passion Week, and he sits with his disciples, you remember, up there on the Mount of Olives, and he's teaching them what we would call the Olivet Discourse. And in this, we've watched him as he's really just unfolding for them and consequently for us just this wonderfully sweeping kind of a panorama of the things that would come in the future. And so it has been for the past couple of weeks, it has been a prophecy-packed couple of weeks. And you have either been especially tuned in or you've been extra tuned out, right, from usual, because Christian perspectives and, and attitudes towards biblical prophecy really can run the gamut. You've got those people on the one hand who just seem to obsess over it, all the way to the people who decide it's just too complicated, and then so they're completely and kind of happily just ignorant of it. But the truth is that a full third of the Bible is prophecy, and a quarter of that remains yet to be fulfilled. And we look at all of the fulfilled prophecies of the past, and they just serve as a reminder for us that all of these prophecies about things in the future are true and are certain. And biblical prophecy really at its root, it's less and less about like, ooh, what's going to happen in the future, but it's more about completing that work of redemption that was begun by God through Jesus Christ. And there's all kinds of purposes of prophecy, and not the least of which is that they, it should motivate us, right? Our beliefs need to affect and need to impact, really need to direct our behavior. 
you may have heard me use this illustration ago, but years ago there was a, a, a dam that was to be built, uh, you know, to kind of dam up a river, and they were ultimately going to flood this whole valley in Maine. And there was a town there in the valley that was scheduled to be relocated, and so that town itself was going to be submerged when they put the dam in. And so during the time between the initial decision and the time that they finished building the dam before they were going to flood that, the town, which had once been this beautiful, well-kept community, just sort of started to slide into despair, right? Everybody's attitude was, why keep it up now, right? And one resident wisely said, they said, where there is no faith in the future, there is no work in the present. And the point, of course, is that it's what we know about the future that will so strongly impact how we live right here and now. And so the question in light of everything that we've seen Jesus lay out for us so far is what do we do with all of this information, right? What are we to do in the midst of this whole end time scenario things can look we seem you know things are getting so bad they seem only to be getting worse and worse so the question for the morning is what in the world do we do now and I think of course that Jesus is going to answer that question for us in our text today last week you remember we looked at a pretty incredible section of scripture Jesus outlined for us all of these events that are going to occur during what we said was that final seven years of this age, what's called Daniel's 70th week. We talked about that rising world ruler who's going to make a covenant with Israel and guarantee her safety and, and provide for the rebuilding of her temple, restarting all of those sacrifices. And then yet that very same ruler is going to break that same treaty just halfway through in an event that Jesus described as the abomination of desolation, right? When this world ruler, the Antichrist, is going to set up an image of himself in the holy place there, in the temple in Jerusalem, declare himself to be God, and then demand that the world bow down and begin to worship him. And remember that Jesus said that that will be the sign, right? When you see that sign, you need to run. Remember that? Because he said that that is going to trigger both this fury of persecution from the Antichrist, but it's also going to trigger the final worldwide judgment, right? This cataclysmic, catastrophic events by the Lord just before Jesus returns. And as Jesus now continues to share with the disciples in what this morning is the final section of the Olivet Discourse, he now is going to turn their attention, and of course turn our attention as well, to the application now of all of these staggering truths that he has laid out. What in the world are they supposed to do? What in the world are we supposed to do with this whole prophetic panorama? And he begins in verse 28 by reminding them of a familiar figure that he had just shared with them before. So he says the very first thing we need to do is watch the fig tree. Look what he says in verse 28 and 29. He says, now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. And so you also when you see these things happening, know that it is near at the doors. So in terms of the timing of all of these things that for the last few weeks we've watched him share, Jesus said that there would be a sign that the signs were about to take place. Right In the same way that they knew that summer was coming in the springtime when they started to see those leaves on the fig tree, that in that same way they would know that his return was close at hand when they see these things that he's just been talking about start to occur, right? They would, this abomination of desolation, the great tribulation, signs in the heavens. And, and all of it seems to make sense, right? This picture of the fig tree is a wonderful kind of a spiritual lesson taken from nature, right? But I believe, many believe, that Jesus was saying something far more significant in bringing up the fig tree. 
Now remember, it wasn't too long ago. We saw it just back in chapter 11. Remember when Jesus cursed that fruitless fig tree as he was walking into Jerusalem, which actually happened just the day before the day we're on now. So that happened on Monday morning. We saw scripturally, historically, we see even presently that the fig tree is a symbol of the nation of Israel. You see it in Jeremiah, Amos, Ezekiel, Hosea, Isaiah, all of those guys liken Israel to a fig tree. And we talked about the fact that Jesus uses this example of the fig tree three different times with kind of three different twists, but taken together, we can see that all of them are very closely connected and really give us this wonderful progressive picture of God's dealings with the Jews. Now, if you missed it, you should check it out. But remember, quickly, remember there was that account we talked about in Luke 13, where Jesus talks about this fig tree that was planted in the vineyard, and, and the keeper, who is Jesus, is asking for more time with the tree from the landowner, who is the father, before they finally cut down the tree. And yet, still we see there was no fruit. Right? Jesus asked, that was the middle of his ministry. He said, I just need some more time with this fig tree. God's patience was finally exhausted. And so remember at the end of the parable, the, the owner basically says, look, why should this continue to just sap nutrients from the soil? Cut that thing down. And then you remember in Matthew 21, the keeper was given just a little more time to care for the tree, but now the time was up. Right? The tree was taking up space. It was doing no good. It wasn't accomplishing its primary purpose. Just like the nation of Israel at this time in their history, remember the tree was a hypocrite tree. It only had the appearance of fruit, but there was no fruit to be found. And the sentence was passed by the judge. And we see that Jesus symbolically cursed the tree. Right, which was a signaling, kind of a setting aside of the nation of Israel. And now we come here the third time, now in Mark 13, also Matthew 24, Luke 21. Jesus again is using this fig tree as a, is kind of detailing out now God's prophetic plan. So after he explains all of these events that are going to be part of the last days... All of these birth pains, right? The signs of the times, the end of the age, including this tribulation and the final coming of the Son of Man. Jesus now again goes back to this parable because he's using this parable as a predictor for when all of these things are going to come to pass. So the, the, the preeminent and primary sign that the time for the appearing of the Son of Man is starting to draw near and that all of these other things that Jesus has talked about are going to start to occur, it's the budding of the fig tree, right? And for so many centuries, all of the, remember, the Israelites scattered in A.D. 70, right? God's own covenant people had no national existence until when? 1948, when they became a nation again, nearly 2,000 years, right? During which the, that time when the Jews, like the fig tree, had kind of shriveled and withered. And yet since that time in 1948, right up until today, what have we seen? We've seen the Jews returning to Israel in these huge numbers, and we've seen the nation thriving and blooming we talked about the fact, remember, that today so many of the latest technological advances in agriculture and computing, medicine, biotech, telecommunications, military defense, they're all coming out of Israel because the God's hand of blessing is on that country in a special way and the economy is booming and as well, though, so is the persecution of these people now by the enemy. Right? Satan is ratcheting up his attacks against them. And so many Bible students of, of Bible prophecy see in all of this what's happened with Israel recently, that the fig tree is starting to put forth its green leaves and prophetically proclaiming the near return of Jesus Christ. And then Jesus adds this. 
He says that when you start to see this budding, look what it says in verse 30. He says, assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away until all these things take place. Now, verse 30, this is certainly one of those seemingly confusing statements that Jesus made, which has led to no shortage of controversy, right? Which generation is he talking about? Well, certainly he was not talking about the generation that was standing there right in front of him. He was not talking about the disciples that were living there on the earth when Jesus gave this teaching. Although there, was, there are some today who would try to make the case for that interpretation. And yet, that generation have certainly all passed away, and absolutely not all of the events of the Olivet Discourse have taken place. We certainly haven't seen the return of Jesus in power and glory the way that we just saw it described last week with the sun and the moon going dark and the stars not giving their light and falling from the sky. We haven't seen that, so we know that that's not option A. Now, others have suggested that the generation, that word should be understood as a race. And they would say that the Greek word would point to men of the same stock or breed or family. And so their argument would be that Jesus is saying that this race of people, the Jews, would by no means pass away until all of these things have occurred. They're saying that this is a promise that the Jewish race wouldn't be extinguished and would survive until the end to see all of these things happen. And there's no question that this is a true promise prophetically. No question that this is proven true historically, that the Jewish race has continued to survive despite the atrocious, you know, the persecution and that they, the Jewish people are a miracle of history. And yet, some language experts would to go so far as to claim that this translation is an embarrassingly wrong translation. So, we're not going to say that it's primarily option B. More simply, there are others who would, complain, who would claim that Jesus is just confirming that the generation who sees all these signs like the abomin abomination of desolation and that sees the, the, uh, the great tribulation, that sees these signs in the heavens, that that generation will also see his return. That is absolutely true. Right? And the point being that once all these things happen, we're no longer on like a thousand-year timetable, but these things are going to happen in rapid succession. Right? Those who, we, we talked about the fact that it was just going to be three and a half years from the abomination of desolation to the return of Jesus. So that is absolutely true. And yet, there are many others, including me, who also believe that this statement about the generation that sees these things is also very closely linked to the budding of this fig tree and most specifically to the blossoming again of the nation of Israel. Right, That the very same people who see the rebirth and the rise of Israel as a nation will see the Lord Jesus coming in the clouds of heaven to reign. And I want to take just a moment here because I think that where people have muddled this view is in trying to define a very strict time frame for what a generation is and then to use that to set a date for when Jesus returns or the rapture which comes before it. So based on Numbers chapter 32, many defined a biblical generation as 38 or 40 years, right? Because it says that the Lord's anger was kindled against Israel. He made them wander in the wilderness 40 years until all that generation that had done evil in the sight of the Lord was consumed. So they said, okay, generation 40 years. And what happened is that anticipation really started to ramp up in the 70s when a then unknown author named Hal Lindsey wrote this book called The Late Great Planet Earth, which really exposed an entire new generation to these ideas about the rapture of the church and the return of Jesus. And it was, in large part, it was these teachings that 
that really were the foundation and the, the, the expectation of the entire Jesus movement, right? And so anticipation really started to grow. And there are many believers who are alive today that you can talk to that were part of this. And there was this wonderful excitement and this expectancy that filled their hearts. Because if you add 40 years to 1948... Right? And if you believe that the rapture of the church would take place seven years before the return of Jesus, that would put the rapture taking place in 1980 or 1981. And so truly, truly, in the 70s, the time was near. And so there were t-shirts and there were bumper stickers and there were posters printed right, that all said Maranatha, right? which, said, which means come quickly, Lord. And that kind of became this watchword for believers, but then what happened? Well, 1980 came and went. So did 1981 and 1982, three, four, five, and six. And then there was something really unfortunate that started to happen, and that was that a whole bunch, a whole generation, if you will, of radical Christians started to cool off. And they said, well, maybe we're here for a while after all. Maybe we shouldn't be so committed to this whole kingdom thing. And there was a dulling of that expectancy that kind of swept over that whole generation. Not unlike that town in Maine that we talked about that was scheduled to be submerged, right? Now, there are others that proposed, if you use the calculations from like the generations in Genesis 2 or in Matthew chapter 1, and you calculate the number of generations from Abraham to Jesus, what you come up with is an average of 51.4 years, which is the actual length of a biblical generation, but that would mean that the rapture should have been in 1999, so that didn't work. Based on Genesis 15, many believe that 100 years is a more accurate measure of a biblical generation. Here's why. It says that God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years, and afterward they will come out with many possessions, and then in the fourth generation they will return here. So God refers to that 400-year period that the Jews were in Egypt. He calls that four generations. So in that model... A generation isn't 40 years or 51.4 years, but a generation is really 100 years. So if a generation is 100 years, am I suggesting that the rapture of the church will take place in 2048? Right? 100 years after the rebirth of the nation of Israel? No, I'm not suggesting that because I'm certainly hoping it's going to be a lot sooner than that. Right? Now, what am I suggesting with all of those numbers, right? What I'm suggesting is that while we can't and shouldn't strive to set a date based on this verse or any of these verses, I'm submitting to you that the figure of the fig tree and the rebirth of the nation of Israel is too important a sign to be ignored. And though we shouldn't get too tied to or tripped up by the actual date of it as much as to understand the profound significance in it. Because remember, when the Jews were scattered, something happened historically that had never happened previously ever in world history. And that is that without a homeland, the Jewish people kept their identity and their religion and their ethnicity intact. And no other nation in the history of the world has ever done that. Every other country that's been swallowed or has become assimilated by a conquering culture has lost their identity within two generations. And that's why you never hear of Babylonians today. That's why none of us have any Amorite or Canaanite neighbors that live down the street. Right? But, when, but the Jews kept their identity, not for two generations, but for 2,000 years. And they maintained it under wave after wave of persecution and of prejudice and of bigotry. 
right? Satan has been relentless in his attempt to destroy the Jewish people, and yet he has failed, and in fact, his plan absolutely backfired because historically, it was in the aftermath of the atrocities of the Holocaust that the world got together and said, you know what? The Jews deserve to have a land of their own. World sympathy was with the Jewish people for the first time in any time in all of history. And that's what led to May 14th of 1948 when Israel became a nation again, which again is something that had never ever happened before this in the history of the world. So the story of the Jewish people and of Israel is nothing short of miraculous. Here this fig tree that had been shriveled and dead and hopeless suddenly sprang back to life and then began to blossom just like Jesus prophesied that it would. And so it absolutely seems to play this very important part in this prophetic timeline, which is why many believe, as do I, that the generation that watched the rebirth happen or at least is witnessing the nation blossoming will be the final generation. One of my favorite authors and journalists right now is Joel Rosenberg. Right? He's an American Jewish messianic born-again Christian who now lives in Israel with his family and writes about current geopolitical events. So he said, after listing out all the different Old Testament prophecies that link Israel to the fig tree, he writes this. He says that when Jesus spoke of the parable of the fig tree, he was referencing these and similar passages. He was saying that when you see the state of Israel reborn and the Jews coming back to the Holy Land and the land of Israel turning green and flourishing again, and when you see this happening in the context of all of the other signs, all of the other birth pangs, then you should know we are in a special and distinctive moment in history, a moment like unlike any other. At that time, while we won't know the day or the hour of Christ's return, the Lord Jesus told us to recognize that he is near, right at the door. So again, what in the world do we do with all of that? Can we be positive? Should we argue? Should we make this a prophetic hill that we die on? And the answer to all of those is, of course not. But I believe there are no coincidences with God. And what has happened with Israel nationally just in the last 75 years has happened miraculously. And it ties this figure of the fig tree prophetically to exactly what it is that Jesus is talking about here scripturally. As mind-boggling as that all might sound. Which is precisely why I believe that Jesus added this next prophetic precious promise. Look in verse 31. He says that heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. He says, look, I know this is going to be hard to understand. He says, but not only can you understand it, you can underscore what I've said because heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not. Right? We know from the book of Revelation you know, John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth because the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no more sea. So there will be a new heaven. There will be a new earth, but the Lord will not change his word. It's going to stand throughout the ages eternally. Right? Peter said that the, the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is such an important and a precious promise in the midst of this world and in the midst of all of these things that are so hard for many of us to try to understand as we just grapple daily with the realities of sin and of suffering and with the brokenness that's all around us. Right? This promise should remain such a great encouragement to us. In particular, despite whatever it is that's going on in our lives personally, when it feels like the heaven and the earth are passing away, you know, we can rest in the word of God. and We can rest in this promise of our future rescue and our future redemption, right? His return is certain. 
and his care and his concern for us is unfaltering because his word can never, ever fail. And what's interesting, though, is on the heels of that, for all the promises, for all the practical encouragement that we find that the word of God provides to us, there are some things in the midst of all of that that Jesus is about to tell us that the Lord has chosen not to reveal to us. Jesus says next that the Father is keeping these things secret in the counsel of his own heart. He says in verse 32, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. You guys remember in the book of Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy 29, 29, Moses reminded the people of this. He said that the secret things belong to the Lord our God. And so here Jesus is confirming that the precise moment of his return cannot be known by anyone. That even he, God the Son, has voluntarily chosen to leave that information deep within the recesses of his triunity with God the Father. Now how does that work? I don't know. If I did, I'd be God. And that would be really bad for you guys, right? Just what Jesus says here alone should warn us against any temptation to try to set dates. Now, what Jesus says here, it's another one of those seemingly slightly confusing, some people would even say contradictory statements. Because remember last week, based on what he just told us about that sign of the abomination of desolation after the idol gets set up in the temple, we could have at least expected that the exact day could be known of his return, right? Remember, Daniel, to whom Jesus just referred, remember John in Revelation 11, they set the day of Jesus' return as being exactly 1,260 days after the occurrence of the abomination of desolation. Remember we said that people could start marking their calendars, right? Checking off the days because the days had been shortened or contained or had been numbered for the sake of the elect. So there's a dilemma here, right? How can Jesus, how can the day of his coming be, be both completely unknown and at the same time be completely known right to the day according to Daniel and John? Well, the answer is, Hold that thought, okay? Jesus said, no man knows the day or the hour. Moses said that the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But then Moses continued and he said this. He said, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. And there's a super important principle here, I think, for us. And that's this. Though Jesus told us that no man knows the day or the hour of his return, we are told this by the Apostle Paul. When he wrote to the Thessalonians, he says concerning the times and the seasons of all of that, he says, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. He says, but you, brethren, are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. So based on what Paul says, as believers, we're not to be ignorant because we can know the times and the seasons because we recognize the signs that are in front of us, like the budding fig tree. And this is really interesting because in Matthew's account of the Olivet Discourse, at this point in this discussion, he includes this important description that Jesus gives of what these, the time of his return would be like on earth. Really just to kind of punctuate this point that although the return of Jesus shouldn't come as a surprise to us, it will absolutely surprise the world because they don't know the times and the seasons. In a sense, what Jesus does in Matthew's account is he gives us yet another sign that the signs are about to come, right? He tells us in Matthew's account exactly what the days are going to be like before his return and essentially says that history is just going to repeat itself. 
You guys all are familiar with these verses. He says that as the days of Noah were, so also will the, uh, will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying, given in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. So Jesus says that just as in the time of Noah, this coming judgment is going to be sudden, and it's going to be a surprise, and that most people are going to be completely unprepared, simply because they are overly occupied with just business as usual overly occupied with everyday life, right? They're living carelessly. They're even living self-indulgently. They're willfully ignoring all of these warnings. Remember, for 120 years, Noah was hammering away at that ark, right? That's a picture, right, that I found on his Instagram of him building. Okay, that's not actually true. That wasn't from his Instagram. But what is true is that each and every nail that Noah pounded into that ark, it was like a visual sermon that was warning the people around him of this impending disaster. And yet what happened? The people were absolutely indifferent, and they just wrote Noah off as a kook. Right? But the Bible tells us that the days of Noah were also days that were marked by violence and demonic oppression and uh, horrible sexual perversity, right? Genesis 6 says that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on earth. and He was grieved in his heart. And so God, in his mercy, decided to lovingly put man out of his misery. And what the flood did is the flood accomplished very quickly and very mercifully the ultimate destruction that their sin and perversion would have inevitably brought about naturally, right? So they went through the routines of life as though they were going to live forever. They were warned that a flood was coming. They were living, though, like they were floodproof. And when it did come, they were absolutely unprepared and they were outside of the ark, right? They were outside of that place of safety. And Jesus says that's just the way that it's going to be when he returns, that only those who are in Christ, but only those who are inside that ark of safety are going to be delivered. Now, I don't think I need to spend too much time convincing you that our current culture Right? In many ways, it has the very same marks of sin as did Noah's day. So the, the truth is that in a lot of ways, you and I are end-time believers just like Noah. Right? Noah lived before the flood, but we're living before the fire. Right? Violence, demonic activity, there's a growing evil influence, there's a, a population explosion that's happening on our planet, there's this general increasing apathy to the things of God. And the whole idea of any kind of judgment, people just scoff at as they are enjoying and really investing themselves, not in spiritual things, but just in the normal everyday pursuits of life. There's no awareness of imminent judgment, right? The warnings keep coming, but it's just business as usual. Now, you guys are smart and you've already seen there's another seeming contradiction here, or at least kind of a nagging question about this timing of Jesus' return, is that how could Jesus come back to both this business as usual kind of world like we just saw here, but this world that's also at the same time supposed to be experiencing the worst catastrophic calamities ever seen on earth described during the Great Tribulation, right? Plagues and boils and water turning to blood and utter darkness and stars falling. Okay, well, watch closely. Start to pay attention if you're not paying attention yet because now in these very final verses of Mark's account of Jesus' teaching on the Mount of Olives, I think Jesus is going to give us more than a hint about how we can really unlock and understand all of this. And he's going to help to clear up some of these seeming 
contradictions. And it starts right here in verse 33 with this exhortation. He says, take heed, watch and pray, for you do not know when the time is. Jesus says, look, here are all of these seasons, all of these signs that I tell you my return is near. And then he says very quickly, quickly that in light of all of those things, the first thing we need to do is to be ready. And all of those verbs in that sentence are in the imperative and they're in the present active tense, which really means Jesus says, keep taking heed, keep watching, keep praying that we need to keep ourselves in this constant state of readiness, right? Watching, waiting, praying, prioritizing, because we don't know when it will happen. Because then further, again, in Matthew's account, Jesus further describes some strange stuff that's going to go down exactly when this sudden return of his takes place. And you guys are familiar with these verses. It's where he says in Matthew 24, 40, that two men will be in the field and one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. So Jesus starts talking about all of these curious disappearances to this sudden sort of a taking away of some people at the coming of the Son of Man. Now I got to say that sounds suspiciously like the rapture described in 1 Thessalonians with believers being caught up in a moment and in the twinkling of an eye to meet him in the air. And so here again we have this second coming dilemma. Is it? at an unexpected hour, or is it something that can be positively predicted? Is it during a time of this business as usual, or is it in the midst of this worst worldwide cataclysmic catastrophe, right? Is it meeting him in the air, right? Or is it, is it him coming to, to the earth? Well, here's the way we resolve the dilemma, is by understanding that there are actually two separate aspects of the return of Jesus. The first one of them is in the air for the church before the tribulation, which is commonly known as the rapture. And the other aspect of the second coming of Jesus is to the earth with the church at the end of the tribulation, most commonly known as the second coming of Jesus. And as we start to understand it this way, Suddenly, all of the contradictions that people point to in Mark 13 or Matthew 24 or Luke 21 or much of the rest of prophecy, suddenly all of those are solved by seeing that there are simply two uh, phases of the return of Christ that are separated by at least that seven-year, 70th week of Daniel. And I think that the language itself of those two sections of verses that we referred to in Matthew, right, the one about the, the days of Noah and the other about the strange disappearances, those verses really help us to understand. Because some would try to say that the taking away of the people, the one from the field and the one from the mill, that that's a reference to them being taken away to judgment when he comes back to rule and reign in Jerusalem, right, at the, at the end of the tribulation. But linguistically, that just doesn't work because the specific language of the verse would lead us to believe that he's talking not about judgment, but about rapture. Here's why. The Greek word that's translated took there in verse 39 of Matthew's account, talking about the flood and taking people away in judgment, it's one Greek word, airo or aero. And interestingly then, in the very next set of verses, verse 40 and 41, when Matthew and Jesus starts talking about the disappearances of these people, also translated taken in English, but it's a completely different Greek word. It's para lombano. Now lombano means to take, and para means what? Alongside. Right? To take alongside. Now here's some other places where that very same word paralambano is used. In Matthew chapter 1, 
when the angel told Joseph not to be afraid to take Mary unto himself as his bride. In Matthew 17, when it says that Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him up to the Mount of Transfiguration. In John chapter 14, where Jesus himself says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you. I will paralambano you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And this is the way one Greek scholar puts it. He says, taken is the same verb used. It implies to take someone to be with you. And therefore here points to salvation rather than to destruction. Remember you guys, words matter. And so by using paralombano about those who are mysteriously taken from the field and from the mill, Jesus is not talking about being taken away to judgment or punishment or damnation. He's talking about being taken into fellowship and into oneness with him. He's talking about taking his bride to glory and heaven, taking us alongside himself. He's talking about the rapture the very first phase of his coming when he takes us to heaven, leaving unbelievers here on earth. And this is the point of this part of the passage, is that while we do know, based on the timelines, we know exactly and precisely when Jesus is going to return to the earth after the tribulation is kicked off, right? seven years from the signing of the treaty, three and a half years from the abomination of desolation, we do know the exact date that he's going to return to the earth with the church. We do not know at all when he will return for his church at the rapture. And this is why there's this constant um, exhortation from Jesus that we need to be ready. I mentioned it last week, I think. There is no other biblical prophecy that needs to be fulfilled before the rapture of the church could take place. It could happen this morning before I finish. And wouldn't we all love that? Amen? Get us out of here early. We as his people, right? Jesus, come and get us before 1130. We need to be living in a constant state, like right up on our tiptoes, like with this expectation and not just watching and waiting and praying and prioritizing, but as Jesus continues now, he gives us one more little parable to tell us that we need not just to be ready and to wait, but we need to be faithful as we wait. Look what, how Jesus concludes the Olivet Discourse in Mark's account. Verse 34, Jesus says that it is like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. How much clearer, right? We need to live and to serve in constant anticipation of the return of Jesus. And that means being about our business for him now. Jesus has left us with work to do, and we need to be faithful and just to do it. In writing to the Corinthians, Paul says this. He says, moreover, it's required in stewards that one be found faithful. And this idea of being found faithful with what we've been entrusted is so important in the economy of heaven. So important, in fact, that in Matthew's account, Jesus even calls this sleeping servant, right, or the unfaithful servant, Jesus says that he is an evil servant. And the word evil is interesting. It means something that was once good but has now gone bad. And it's a word that would describe like a, an instrument that was tuned and then sort of went out of tune or a piece of fruit that was uh, ripe and fresh, but now it's kind of gone bad. So the question is, how did the servant in this parable go from good to bad? 
Well, he simply got tired of waiting for the master to return. He stopped watching for his master's coming, right? That sense of urgency and expectancy got replaced by a sense of complacency and carnality, and he fell asleep because he thought he had plenty of time. There's a, a very familiar old story that took place, uh, a meeting that took place one day in hell. And you can see they have uh, pictures of it there where Satan gathered right, all of his head demons around a table and he commanded them to think up a new lie that would trap more people and doom them to hell. And one demon says, look, I've got it. I'm going to go to earth and I'm going to tell people there's no God. And Satan said, that'll never work. He said, people can look around them and they know that there is a God. Well, another demon said, okay, I'm going to go tell them there's no heaven. And Satan rejected that idea. He says, look, everybody knows there's life after death and they all want to go to heaven. Let's tell them there's no hell, one demon said. And, G and, uh, and Satan said, no, their conscience tells them that their sins have to be paid for. We need a better lie than that. And then a fourth demon was very quiet, and he said, look, I think I've solved our problem. He says, what if I go to earth and just tell everybody there's no hurry? It's no small thing, you guys, to say Jesus isn't coming today, or that he isn't coming for years, and that I've got plenty of time. The Bible's very clear. We need to be ready for the imminent return of Jesus, hoping that it's going to come right about now and yet faithfully serving if he doesn't and faithfully serving until he does. And notice with me, I love in this parable the way that it's worded. Notice what it is that Jesus or that the owner, Jesus, gave the servants before he left. First of all, he gave them authority, right, or responsibility. In the very same way that Jesus has entrusted us with the truth of the gospel message and with the great commission of getting that truth out to everyone else. And then notice specifically how he's called us to do that. Look back again in verse 34. Jesus says that the owner gave to each his work. And some of your translations might say that each had their assigned task or that he assigned to each one his own task. So we have all been given this gospel mission generally, and yet Jesus has called us and equipped us and has placed each one of us into unique environments where we can accomplish that mission in our own way specifically. And your work might look very different than my work. At least I hope it does, or there's no point in me doing my work or you doing your work. Right? There, are, there are people who you can reach who I can never hope to reach. And Lord knows that there are wonderful gifts that so many of you guys have that I will never hope to have. And so you need to be faithful to use those gifts to reach those people. Right? We're not responsible for the work that God gave to somebody else. But let me tell you, we are certainly responsible for the work that God gave to us. And so the text really kind of asks each one of us at a very important question. Are we watching? Are we waiting? And are we working while we do it? And there's one thing that's happened in the church, particularly in America, is this kind of a shift in emphasis over the last 20, 30, maybe even more years, there has been kind of a pulling away from all of these things. There's been a pulling away from the emphasis of, on prophecy and on the coming of the, the rapture. And what the church is doing now is to focus more and more on social justice, to focus more and more on kind of a social gospel. Because the church has kind of said, well, forget about all of that prophecy stuff. Let's just be good. Let's just do good. Now, there, there's nothing wrong with that because we are called to that. But doing all of that can never replace our calling to the work 
of the gospel, the true gospel, not the social gospel. We need to be missional with the gospel, right? We need to be on a mission of getting out the gospel as we do whatever it is that we do, right? We need to live out the gospel message and we need to do it intentionally and purposefully and most importantly, we need to do it consistently. We need to be missional and influential for God in any and every environment, any context that he has given us. Anywhere where he has given us influence, right? Where he has placed us any time, day or night, that's the entire point of prophecy, right? That we live in a place where we're ready and that we live in a way that we're living faithfully. We should still, in the midst of that missional living, we need to be watching and waiting expectantly just as much as those believers were in the 70s during the Jesus movement. Right? We should be saying, Maranatha, right? come quickly. Only hopefully we would have cooler t-shirts now than, than they had then. But do you see the way that, that, that one sort of naturally fuels the other? What better motivation do we need to be influential for Jesus in whatever context he's put us, right, than knowing accurately and prophetically about all of the horrors that are going to come upon this earth and upon the people who have to face those things? And understanding that our time for ministry and influence is so short because our redemption draws so near. And just speaking from a personal perspective on what it does to our faith, maintaining that concern for prophecy, right? Knowledge of the end times, having an awareness of those things, it has a wonderfully sanctifying influence in our lives and on our lives, right? And anything that influences us toward holiness and away from ungodliness is a good thing. I have to say personally, I am so thankful that I don't know when Jesus is coming back because I know what I would do if I did know. Now, I know you guys wouldn't do this because you're much holier than I am, but what I would do is I would have a tendency to mark that date on my calendar, set a reminder on my phone, maybe two weeks before that date, so I could clean up my act before Jesus got here, and I would just live however I wanted right up until that point. Again, I know you guys wouldn't do that. You'd be here in church every morning. But it does something very, very healthy within our lives not to know the day or the hour. And through 2,000 years of church history so far, and who knows how many more years after this, it has been a healthy influence on the body of Christ to live in a way where we are watching and waiting as we're working. It certainly has this wonderfully purifying effect on our lives. And so we see the wisdom in all of this, right? If he did return today, would he catch us in a place of faithfulness? Or would he find us each in a place of compromise? Would he find us very far from the thing he's called us to do and, and from who we're supposed to be in him? So it's a heavy question for a Sunday morning, but is there anything in our lives that needs to change between us and God this morning in order for us to be those Christians who are watching and waiting and also found faithful to that gospel commission we have at any given moment? And if it's not the case, what is it that needs to change in order for that to be the case in our lives? And that sounds like a heavy trip, but think about it. This is the kind of Christianity that is robust. This is the kind of Christianity that has some power in it and that won't be pushed around by the culture around us. To be able to watch and to wait and to work with this confidence and this expectancy, even now as we live here, right in the days of Noah. What a time to be alive, right? As we're living here for God in the midst of all of these things that are happening, right? It's just important that we don't let all of the unbelief and the rebellion and the increasing wickedness discourage us or silence us or cause us to be stumbled because we know what's coming because 
Jesus took the time to tell us what to expect so that we could say, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus, right, when we start to see these things. Amen? Amen. Amen. So, Father, we thank you, Lord, for this morning, and we thank you, Lord, as we do each and every week. We thank you for your word, and we thank you for... Lord, the encouragement and the exhortation that it provides to us, Lord, uh, in order to examine our lives, Lord, um, to make sure that we are living in a state of readiness and anticipation, Lord, but also in a state of faithfulness to that wonderful gospel commission that you've given us. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us, Lord, by the power of your spirit, help us to bring our lives into line with that, Lord. And um, we pray that you would make these truths alive in each one of our hearts, Lord. We pray that your spirit would be there to comfort and to guide and to equip and to empower and to enable. And we ask it, Lord, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.